Romans chapter 8 from verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And then from John chapter, 1 John sorry, chapter 3. 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Let's pray once again. O God, teach us more of the love with which we've been loved, more of the mercy which has been bestowed upon us, more of the privilege and favour that belongs to us as children of God, more of the wonders of that Saviour and his so great salvation, which is all our joy. Lord, instruct us, elevate our souls, we pray. Feed us on heavenly things tonight for the praise of your great grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that having been predestined, we have been called. Having been called, we have been justified in pursuit of conformity or full likeness to Jesus Christ in order that he might be preeminently glorified as the firstborn among many brothers. And then after justification, those, he also, those whom he justified, these he also glorified. And as we've been trying to understand how it is that God in his saving mercy deals with our souls, we've said that there is space uh, along this line of these four experiences for other spiritual experience. That Romans 8 focuses particularly on the acts of God himself. It is God who chooses us in Christ. It is God who calls us to Christ. It is God who declares us righteous in Christ, and it will be God who brings us to full likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ when he glorifies us. But what happens in those spaces in between? And in one sense, the biggest space that we have to fill in that sequence is between justification and glorification. Now, in one sense, the fact that the apostle yokes them straight together is actually the greatest comfort and joy that you can know as a Christian. Because if you've been justified, you are as good as glorified. Paul puts it in the past tense so much as to say that everything that lies between justification and glorification, God declaring us to be righteous in Christ and God making us finally and entirely like Christ, all of that is secured and assured 
because God has predestined, called, justified, and therefore we shall most assuredly be glorified. In fact, Paul the Apostle in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 talks about God completing the work that he has begun. And the language is almost that of putting the finishing touches on something. Having predestined you, if you're a Christian, and called you, and justified you, all that remains is the finishing touches. Is that how you feel? It's what God, in effect, says. That so certain, so absolute are the things that have already taken place, that everything that lies between your conversion and your coming into union with Jesus Christ by faith is, is just finishing off the work that he has done. This is our certainty then. And it helps us to understand what takes place in the space between justification and glorification. Because as those who have been born again, as those to whom has been granted faith and repentance, as those who so united to Christ by faith have been declared righteous in God's sight, we are also adopted. We are brought in visibly and legally to the family of God. Then we are sanctified and then we are sustained in order that ultimately we may be glorified on the day of Christ's return. There is then this, this beautiful combination, regeneration. Naturally, we are now new creatures, but there's a, a legal status as well. We are declared righteous in God's sight. And so both naturally and legally, we can now be owned by God as his sons. We've been born again, that's what he has made us, but he has also altered our status with regard to the law through Jesus Christ in order that he can now, with perfect righteousness, bring us into his family. He does this then by both regeneration and by justification. So that in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29, we read that if we know that God is righteous, we know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And that leads John into this statement which is, is absolutely stunning. It is delightful. Remember who is saying these words. This is, we might say, Jesus' best earthly friend. This is the man who laid his head on Christ at the Last Supper. This is the man to whom the Lord Jesus entrusted the care of his mother and said, he is a son to you and you are a mother to him with all that that means. This is the man who would see the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration and see it again on the Isle of Patmos. This is a man who knows the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity and in his divinity in a way that beggars our experience in large measure and yet still says at the beginning of his letter that that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And it is from such a heart that come these words. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. 
Now, are you stunned by divine love? Before you say yes, stop and ask whether or not you are really blown away by the fact that God has loved you with the kind of love that makes you his sons. It's easy to tick that box. John's language, as so often, is relatively simple. But the sense is stupendous. Are you amazed? Are you brought to humble adoration? Do you stop and contemplate at length the kind of love with which God has loved you as one of his people? Do you stop to marvel at the way that God has dealt with you? John emphasises it. Uh, even in his word order, he, he actually says something more like, behold, what, what manner of love or what otherworldly or other country love the Father has bestowed on us that children of God, we should be called. Everything in John is, is taken up with this. He has not become over-familiar with these things. Neither his sense of Christ's humanity has made this ordinary, nor his sense of Christ's divinity has taken this out of the realm of his capacity. But what marvels him, what, what stuns him, what delights him, and what he wants us to be delighted by is that sinners and rebels like us, those who deserve hell, those who have been antagonistic toward God, those whose lives have been marked by enmity toward God, we are now called and designated children of the living God. We've been brought into his family through the sacrifice of his only begotten son. In Galatians chapter 4, you remember how the Apostle Paul speaks there. That when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We are not by nature sons of God. We are not by nature children of God in the spiritual sense. Now physically, we all have God as our father creator. Paul uses that language in Acts chapter 17. But spiritually speaking, we are aliens and strangers. We are rebels and we are enemies. And yet, the uniquely begotten son, the only begotten son, that one who was in the bosom of the Father, full of grace and truth. He came forth, taking our humanity, and he died in our place in order that we might be brought into the family of God righteously and properly. And that means, Christian brother and sister, that we have the status and the title and the relationship of children to God with all of the privileges that involves. It is why you can call him Abba, Father. John says this is a, a supernatural love. This is an otherworldly love. This is the kind of love that, that we don't find here. It has come to us from above. It is utterly undeserved. You cannot deserve God's love. The only person who deserves the perfect love of the perfect God is the perfect God himself. It is infinite. It has no beginning. It has no ending. 
It is glorious. Consider its dimensions. Think of its objects, its outworkings, its demonstrations. It is everlasting. It is the love of the God who is love, who is without beginning and without end. In fact, it's delightful to think about it if you, if you want to step back from this adoption reality for a moment and you think again, why were we predestined? Because God had chosen us in Christ on account of the love with which he had loved us, a love that springs unbidden from his own heart of love and a love which cannot and will not cease for, because for God to cease to love those upon whom he has set his love would be for him to break his own covenant and to turn from his purposes. It would be, in effect, to un-God himself. And that is how fixed and sure is the love of God toward us. So when you think of where the love comes from, what the love accomplishes, whom the love is for, what it still is doing, its very nature and essence, John says, I want you to stop and think about that. Perhaps, brothers and sisters, if there's going to be any object suitable for our private meditations, it might be the love of God that has shown toward us that we might be called the children of God. If you cannot think of much else with regard to God, think upon this. Perhaps before you go to bed this evening, read these verses. Read some portion that speaks of God's love toward you, Christ's dying in your place, the experience of your salvation. And pause and ponder and dwell upon the fact, not merely that God has loved you, but the kind of love with which God has loved you in order that you might become one of his children. It's so important in this that we, we don't fall into the error that it's so easy to make and project onto God what we think rather to understand from God how we ought to think. The love with which we are loved is not like the love that we see in the world, just a bit better. It is distinctly divine. And rather than think that God's love is like ours but greater, we should be thinking our love ought to be like his, though it is lesser. And we're told again and again then that the love with which we are to love one another is to have the character of the love with which we have been loved. That if God has loved us like this, then we ought to love one another in the same way. And you will never do that. You will never be able to do that until you first understand how you have been loved. So, brothers and sisters, behold what manner of love God has bestowed upon us that we should be called his children. The reason why we do not love as we should is because we do not have the sense of being loved as we really are by our heavenly Father. Let it sink in. Ponder it. Delight in it. Even as you come to the Lord's table this evening, Remember that this is the manifestation of God's love toward you while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. The just for the unjust to bring us to God, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When did you last stop 
and behold the love of God the Father toward you, that you are now, who were once a rebel and an enemy, a child of the Most High. John wants us to begin with the contemplation of that divine love by which we have been made the children of God. But he presses home next the distinction of divine sons. The distinction of divine sons. There's a consequence of being so loved and a consequence of being made, therefore, children of God, called children of God. Because of this, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, what does it mean that the world doesn't know us? It means it doesn't recognise who we really are. It doesn't see Christians as children of God. It is blind to our status, our dignity, our happiness, our prospects, our relationships and our privileges. Ask somebody in the world, you understand the sense of this, somebody who has no real sense of God, no uh, appreciation for Jesus Christ, ask them, who do you think are the happiest people in the world? Ask them, do you, do you see any kings and princes here? Ask them, who are the most high-born people that they know? They won't pick us. In fact, if we tell them that, they will think that we are utterly insane. You know that beautiful poem that uh, Charles Wesley wrote for the, uh, the, the Kingswood Miners? These men and women who lived like animals in holes in the ground, covered in the, 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 the soot and the, the coal of their mining activities. And how when he preached to them the love of Jesus Christ, the, 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 uh, the water from their eyes drew these white tracks on their cheeks. And Wesley wrote for them that hymn in which he declares in the kind of language that, that would beggar the understanding that we are princes and kings here below. And he explains, he expresses, I, I wish I had the whole thing to hand. I, I've got a sense of it in my mind. I can't remember the precise forms of words. If I can find it, I'll send it round. It is stunning. It's basically, yeah, you despise us. You think nothing of us. But we have been made kings and priests to God. We are the ones who rule in Jesus Christ. We are seated in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, the world doesn't know us. It doesn't understand who we are. It doesn't appreciate what we have got. We should, because we've been beholding the love of God toward us as the Father who's made us his children. But the world has no particular sense of these things. So in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. You see, our glory is hidden. It's not evident to the eyes of those who have no faith. Our priorities, our pursuits, our pleasures, the things which grab our souls and stir our hearts and stimulate our lives, our present strivings and sufferings and sorrows, the world sees them and it thinks, what poor and wretched people. 
But the things that are our delights, it does not know. The prospects that we have, the glory that lies ahead, the realities that are woven in through our Bibles, the fact that we belong to God, that we're seated with Christ, that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with his beloved Son. These things are things that the world cannot understand. They are, as we heard this morning, blind to these realities. They cannot grasp them. The world does not know us. And that should be no surprise to us because it didn't know him. It didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. We read it in John chapter 1 and verse 10 that he came to his own And his own did not receive him. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. It was blind to his beauty. Remember that only those who are called have their eyes open to behold the glory of God as it shines in the face of Jesus Christ. When you're blind, you cannot see the beauty of Jesus Christ. As in Isaiah 53, we saw no comeliness in him, nothing to delight us, nothing to attract us. But do you see him now? Paul talks in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 about seeing Christ no longer according to the flesh. How did Paul once esteem Christ? Not at all. Despised, disdained him thought he was doing God a great service by tracking down all the followers of the Nazarene and putting them into prison and, if need be, to death. But now he saw him. Now he understands his glory. Now he appreciates Christ Jesus. But the world didn't know him. And the world doesn't know us. You can trace it all the way through the history of God's people. Ishmael and Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. What do you have from the beginning? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent is blind to the blessing and the joy of the sons of God. They see nothing worth having, these sons of darkness, in those who have been made sons of light. And that means that in this world, if you have the sweet and blessed privilege of being the children of God, then there will be no affection toward you in this world. Even natural affection can be dimmed and dulled when you belong to God rather than to men. There's no real connection. There's no real relation. This is the sword that brings a gulf even within families. It will break out sometimes in just subtle resistance sometimes in more open opposition, antagonism, and even persecution itself. And the world will not know you, because it did not know him. If it couldn't recognise the Son of God, how will it understand the children of God? But that's now. There's going to come, thirdly, the revelation of these divine relationships. The world doesn't know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. John underlines it. He he drives it home. 
Just because the world can't see it doesn't mean that it isn't true. This is what God himself has declared. We have been called the children of God by God himself. He's brought us to himself. He's renewed us in Christ Jesus. He has declared us righteous in his sight. He's brought us in by a legal change of status to the divine family so that now we are in his household. We are under his wing. Our older brother is watching over us and he is leading us. And we are now children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see how John moves us through, and he's, he's moving us forward. He's doing what Paul does in Romans 8. We've been predestined, we've been called, we've been justified, and we're on the way to being glorified. Now we are children of God. This is the present reality. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Now, in some senses, we can understand that. How much glory do you see in yourself? <laughs> How much likeness to Christ do you sometimes glimpse? Brothers and sisters, sometimes we struggle with this, don't we? Ever look in the mirror and you think, yep, you're going to shine brighter than an angel. You'd have to have some kind of arrogance and pride to think like that, wouldn't you? Rather, you see the outward man perishing. You feel the increase of perhaps age or weariness or sickness or whatever it may be. And yes, now, although the present reality is that we are children of God, divinely ordained to be such, secured by the diktat of God, declared by God himself, yet now suffering before glory. Now the experience of the cross in anticipation of the crown. And that's our present situation. We can't see what we're going to be. And no one else can see what we're going to be. There's a not yet here. We know that when he is revealed, it has not yet been, sorry, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We cannot yet see it. Now, I can describe some of it to you. And God helping me, if he spares me to finish this series, I will attempt with my feeble, mortal words to try and do something of that. But we don't know. It hasn't yet been revealed what we shall be, except that we shall be like him. And that means, brothers and sisters, that we are still walking by faith, and not by sight. That you can look at yourself and say, I'm not sure I can see it right now, but I have not trusted the evidence of my eyes. I have put my faith in the God who saves. I am resting upon his promises, which are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. I believe that what God has begun, he will complete until the day of Jesus Christ. I am confident that having borne the image of the man of dust, I must also bear the image of the heavenly man. I am persuaded that this world is going to be made new by the word of Christ at his return. I believe that there are going to be glorious prospects. I understand from what God has said that the world being made new, his people 
but will have a happy place in it as those who now bear the image of the risen Jesus Christ and the glory that belongs to him will be the glory that is bestowed upon us. And it's not yet been revealed, but it doesn't mean that it isn't true. We don't fully grasp the coming glory of the children of God, but it will be revealed. And it will be revealed when he is revealed. Now we are children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Think of it, my friends. Because we are sons of God, we are waiting for the time when the Son of God will be revealed from heaven in his glory. And we will see him in company with every eye that has ever opened in this earth. We will see Christ in his saving majesty. We will see the Son of God coming in his glory with all his angels with him to sit on the throne of his glory. We will see him clearly. We will see him delightedly. We will see him truly. We will see him really. It will be no apparition. It will be no notion. It will be no vision. It will be no dream. The glory cloud will open and Christ will come forth and And when we see him, it will be transformative. The sight that we now have of him by faith is what makes us more like him. In the moment when our eyes see him, we shall be transformed. And this earthly body, this corrupt body, this corruption will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. All through the scriptures in these various places, we are looking forward to the glorious hope of the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Think of Philippians chapter 3. At the end of the chapter, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? He will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. My friends, the revelation of the Son of God in his glory is the moment of the revelation of the glory of the sons of God. That is when you will be seen as you really are. The world cannot see it and does not know it and will not recognise it. Faith says it is true. One day it will be sight. One day it will be clear. One day it will be plain. When the Son of God is revealed, we also will be revealed as like him because we will see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, there is going to come a time when our divine sonship is on full display. No one will doubt it then. No one will deride us or our saviour then. Every eye shall see him. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess of those in earth and under the earth and over the earth. All men and women, all creatures, all angels and devils, all must testify that he is the Son of God in his glory. And no one will doubt who we are like and to whom we belong. You died 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. My friends, what we are, unseen now, will be revealed when the glory of Christ is revealed. And then there will be an implication for us of divine purity. You see, you cannot behold the manner of love that the Father has bestowed on us. You cannot consider that now we are children of God. You cannot contemplate the coming change without a change happening in you. Because everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The consequence of this hope is holiness. If you have no appetite for holiness, it's because you have no hope. If you don't want to be like Jesus Christ now, you will not be like Christ when he returns. If you're content to drift along, if you're willing to be a part of this world, if your appetites are yoked here, if you want to fit in, if you have no delight in the sons of God, if you have no commitment to obedience to the law of the Lord, if the commandments of God are oppressive and onerous and burdensome to you, then you are not a child of God. The sons of God love the law of their father. The children of God love their brothers in the family of God. And John says... That if you're a child of God, then you will live like one. You will become more and more what God has made you to be. Not in name only, but increasingly in the reality of the new nature as it works itself out in you. You cannot, you cannot, if you are a child of God, live in contradiction of your identity and your destiny. Children of God walk in their Father's ways. Not perfectly, not yet. But sincerely and really and ardently and increasingly. And if that's not your way and if that's not your desire and if that's not your path, then you are not a child of God. Because God's sons are not a careless bunch. God's sons are not a self-indulgent gang. God's children are not disobedient to him. Fundamentally, having been loved by him, we love him. And his commandments are not burdensome. What is one of the marks of the new covenant people of God? It is to have God's law inscribed by the finger of God on the fleshy tablet of your heart. The law of God ceases to be that burden from without that simply exposes our shortcomings. It becomes the joy and delight of our soul, this holy fear of the Lord. John says that's the holy logic of it. I want to please my Father in heaven. I want to be pure, just as he himself is pure. I want to walk in the footsteps of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to labour after righteousness little children verse 7 let no one deceive you he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous 
Do you desire godliness? Not have you perfected it, but do you desire it? And are you increasing in it? Do you cultivate the kind of purity that is a proper reflection of the character of your God as it is made known in Christ Jesus? The writer to the Hebrews puts it plainly like this. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And the logic of that is not, I need to be holy in order that I might see God. But if I am on my way to see God in this way, then I will be a holy person. It's the mark of the heaven-born man or woman. It's the life of those who belong to Jesus Christ. It's the appetite of those who are living and in anticipation of the revelation of his glory and in the revelation of his glory, the manifestation of our own. It's not mere obligation. No child of God should live thinking day by day, well, I suppose I've got to do these things. I suppose I have to obey. There are my real pleasures. Those are my real desires. Those are the things in which I truly delight. But God's put up this horrible thorny hedge between me and those things, and I'm going to have to do what God wants. No, the child of God says, I've turned my back upon those things. Yes, sometimes I catch a glimpse of them out of the corner of my eye and God forgive me, there's a a, a part of me sometimes that still would be turning back if it were not for the fact that I have been turned around by God and I have new appetites and new desires and new priorities and new expectations. The old has gone and it has gone for good. The new has come and it keeps on coming because I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. I have been born again from above and my nature is now increasing, is first of all entirely in itself in conformity to God and it works itself out in ongoing righteousness. We love because we've been loved. We strive because we've been saved. We serve because we are sons. It's the simple reality of the new creation. The pattern for it is God himself. Sons are like their fathers. God's sons are like their father in heaven. They're like their older brother Jesus Christ. They purify themselves in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, just as He Himself is pure. Not equality, but the same quality, the same purity, the same integrity, the same beauty, the same moral excellence that is in Christ Himself as the Son of God is the same quality, the same beauty, the same integrity, the same moral excellence that is in us and that we as children of God are cultivating day by day. Why? Because we're on our way home. Now we are sons of God. It's revealed by our growing holiness, but it's not yet seen in the glory which lies ahead. Glimpses of it in the purity that is Christ-like in the way that you speak, in the way that you think, in the way that you act, in the way that you serve, where you can say in effect, I can see that that one is a child of God. I can see the family likeness. 
I can see the same inclination. They are, spiritually speaking, a chip off the old block. Are you a son of God? Are you a child of the Most High? It is by faith. Remember how John begins. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. How do you get into God's family? It's not by being born into a certain family on earth. It's not by the right kind of marriage. It's not because some human being has somehow designated these things. It is because you've been born from above. You've been joined to Jesus Christ. God himself has declared you righteous in his sight, accepted in the beloved. And the door to the family home is flung open. And God says, you're one of mine. Live like it. Walk like it. Serve like it. Purify yourself, just as my beloved son is pure. Have you marveled at God's love toward you? That this is now all yours. That he has set his love upon you in Christ. That from heaven he looked down in pity and with power. And he determined that he would have you to be one of his beloved ones. Have you stopped to contemplate that? Have you felt your identity? Does it comfort you in a world in which you are a stranger and a pilgrim? That the reason why the world does not know you is because God does. That the reason why you don't feel at home here is because you have a home there. Are you eagerly waiting for the revelation of the sons of God? Are you anticipating the day when Christ being seen and you seeing Christ, all will see that you are of Christ and of God? And are you, as a result of that glorious hope, cultivating conformity to God and to his Son, Jesus Christ, pursuing that holiness without which None of us will see the Lord. Cultivating that righteousness which pleases God. Working in accordance with the inward working of the Holy Spirit. Because now there's both a desire for, an appetite for, and a capacity to pursue that which pleases our Father in heaven. And do you therefore come and sit down at the family meal? That Passover, that last Passover, that first supper, Christ reveals himself as the head of a new family. When Ryan and Erica make their commitments to us, and when we make our commitments to them and to one another, when we speak that covenant with each other and to each other before God and this congregation. You know what we're saying, don't you? We are sons of God. That's not our boast. 
in the sense that this is what we've made ourselves. It's our boast in that we boast of him. It is our true covenant that we will live together as the family of God, that we will love him who has loved us and we will love one another who have been loved by him, that we will strive together for the glory and honour of our God in this world, that we will encourage one another, that we'll remind one another that though we were rebels and criminals, antagonists, strangers, outcasts, God, through the blood of his Son, has washed us, made us clean, brought us close, We've been clothed in his righteousness and together we strive that we may all arrive at last in the glory which is to come. None of us will be left behind. None of us will be overlooked. There will come a moment when if we have died before the return of Christ or if we are alive and remain, we shall together be caught up and made like him and thus we shall be forever with the Lord my friends the adoption the adoption is the gift of God it is the purchase of the son it is the manifestation of the work of the spirit in our hearts it is the declaration that we are must remain should clearly be and will one day be revealed as the children of the living God.